You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. I'm going to ask you now, if you will, to stand and honor God's Word if you're able to. Revelation chapter 6, pick it up in verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the, living, the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed after him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Father, we pause this morning and we say thank you for the courage and bravery of those who have fought for our freedom and continue to fight even this day all over the world. We thank you for their bravery. We thank you for their example. And Father, we count it a great privilege to be able to enjoy the freedoms that their bravery has provided. But Father, we also know that this world and the universe is in the palm of your hand. Father, we know that you have a plan. Lord, we learned last week that there are no problems in heaven, only plans. And Father, as we look at this text today and the text that's coming in the weeks ahead, Father, we begin to see your plan come to fruition. We begin to see how, Father, you are going to wrap all things up, that all the wrongs are going to be made right. And Father, while this is hard to read, hard to study, hard to consider. Father, I pray that we would realize that you are completely and fully in control. And not only that, that you have given us a pathway of escape through your Son. And Father, may we accept by grace that gift that has been given to us, that great gift of salvation. And may we be willing to live out that salvation in front of a world that is watching We ask all this in the powerful and strong name of Christ. Amen. You can be seated. It was 2 a.m. on August the 6th. A modified B-29 Super Fortress had been adapted to haul a payload that, quite frankly, the world had never seen or even considered. This Super Fortress bomber was piloted by a guy by the name of Colonel Paul Tibbetts, and this Super Fortress was going to take off from an island called the Tinian Island near Guam. It was at that height of the war with Japan where our country had approached Japan and asked for Japan to surrender. If they did not surrender, then steps were going to be taken and a weapon was going to be used unlike anything the world had ever seen up to that point. This particular bomb was, well, it was more than 10 feet long, 30 inches across. It weighed over five tons. As a matter of fact, Colonel... Tibbetts knew that this particular bomber, this B-29, 
had a history of, if you had a heavy payload on this plane, that the plane had a hard time taking off. And they were worried that, that this bomb that they were going to put on the plane, that they may not actually be able to take off because of the weight and the size of this one piece of ordnance. The other big question that came up is, is what if the plane crashes? What's going to happen to the bomb? Will it go off? In other words, would they end up blowing up the whole island that they were on simply trying to take off with this plane? So they made the decision that they would disarm the bomb, put a couple of scientists that knew how to arm it, and wait till they got to cruising altitude at 37,000 feet to climb down into the cargo hold of this B-29 Superfortress and arm the first atomic bomb. Can you imagine sitting in the bottom of a B-29 with a 10-foot-long, 5-ton bomb and having to arm that bomb on that plane at 37,000 feet. That's what they had to do. The only way to, to safely be able to take off. The world had never seen a weapon. There had been tests in the deserts of New, Me New Mexico, and there were rumors that, that the Americans had the bomb to end all bombs. But the Japanese were under the assumption that, number one, we weren't far along enough in our development of the bomb that we would actually use it, and secondly, that we didn't have the guts to use that bomb, even though we'd warned that we would. Well, early on that morning, under the direction of Colonel Paul Tibbetts on the Enola Gay, named after the colonel's mother, they are flying into the inner parts of Japan. They had a very specific target already marked out. Right in the middle of Hiroshima, there was a very distinct looking bridge that looked like a T. And that bridge was easily seen from the height at which the plane would be flying. And they knew that when they saw that bridge, that's when they were to release this five-ton bomb. So sure enough, as they get into their bomb and run, this bomb that had been nicknamed Little Boy, was dropped from this plane, and this bomb went off 1,900 feet above the surface of Hiroshima. And when that bomb exploded at 1,900 feet above the city, between 80,000 and 140,000 people died in less than two seconds. I want you to let that sink in for just a moment. The world had never seen anything like this weapon. And when this bomb was detonated, 80 to 140,000 people, they still to this day don't know exactly how many people died, don't know exactly how many people, but they say there's no way it's less than 80,000 people. Then in a mere second, in a mere flash, those people were vaporized, nothing left. No bones, very few evidence that they ever existed. Children on their way to school. Senior adults sitting out, drinking a cup of tea like they would do every morning. People on their way to work. A flash, and then thousands of people gone. There was 100,000 more people that were injured from this bomb. They say that the temperature at ground zero, where this bomb went out, the, the temperature at ground zero rose to a million degrees Celsius in a matter of a second. This bomb was so bright that people living five miles away, when they saw it go off, they said it was brighter than the sun, even 10 times brighter than looking at the sun. Now, when we think about 
the incredible amount of power. And not only one bomb in Hiroshima, but another bomb, a very different bomb, a very different bomb in how it was designed and how it was deployed, but another bomb in Nagasaki. Two bombs, two, two unimaginable levels of destruction that the world had never seen. And by the time this bomb had hit and it decimated this city for miles, Tokyo still had not even no idea as to what had actually happened. It would be a couple of days before they could get a plane in the air because there was so much smoke, so much burning fires, so much debris that was still in the air that they couldn't even see the ground. So they had to wait a few days, and they still wasn't sure that the Americans had used the atomic bomb until this plane flew over and radioed back and said, Hiroshima is gone. When we think about all of our history and time of the great works of power. When, when humanity was able to develop something, whether it be a, a military force or in this instance, a bomb that could render such utter destruction, we begin to think, wow, what could be worse than that? What could be worse than Hiroshima and Nagasaki? What could be worse than, than maybe the Holocaust where 11 million people were put to death? When we look at all of human history, we can look at points along that timeline and go, man, look what humanity did. But folks, I'm here to tell you that what we're getting ready to read from chapter 6 to chapter 19 makes Hiroshima and Nagasaki look like a summer picnic. There's no comparison whatsoever. What God is going to unleash upon this earth in righteous judgment, there is nothing in history that you can even point to that even comes close. So let me just tell you on the front end, the next few weeks are not going to be a very encouraging journey. <laughs> it's a very hard text that we have to look at, but here's what you got to understand. The God of creation, this God that we know to be loving, this God that we know to be filled with grace and mercy that we see all through the pages of Scripture, is at the same time a God of wrath and justice. And you may be confronted with the reality that the God that you believe in may not be the full, the fullness of God as he is revealed in Scripture. You may have maybe defaulted on the idea that God is altogether loving. He can never, he can never punish people. That God can never, ever unleash his unrestricted wrath upon this planet. Well, if that's where you're at, you're really going to have a hard time today and over the next few weeks. So much so that I've decided to take a break in December. I mean, honestly, when we get into December, we're going to just take a break, and we'll pick this back up after the first of the year because it's, it's really heavy. And I need you to have some time to absorb some of the things we're going to be looking at. Chapter 6 through 19 is referred to in the New Testament as the day of the Lord. You've heard me teach through books like First and Second Timothy, where Paul talks about the awesome day of the Lord. And I told you way back then that it was not referring to just a single day. It was referring to this period of time that we know to be the tribulation, the great outpouring of God's wrath upon this world. Not only does the New Testament refer to it as the day of the Lord, it's also referred to in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, as the time of Jacob's trouble. It's also referred to in Daniel chapter 9 as the 70th week of Daniel, this period of, of great destruction that God will pour out. Billy Graham wrote a book in 1983 and I happen to still have it on my shelf, as a matter of fact. Somebody gave it to me years ago. And the name of that book is called Approaching Hoofbeats. 
And the title of that book is based on the chapter we're looking at today. And by the way, I am not going to get through this whole chapter. My intentions were to get all the way through chapter 6, but early on in my study, I'm like, there's no way we're going to get through this chapter today. So we're going to get through the first eight verses, and we'll figure out the rest of it next week. Billy Graham wrote a book talking about these four horsemen that we're going to look at today. And this is what Billy Graham said in 1983 on page 10. He said, quote, the shadows of all four horsemen can be seen galloping through the world at this moment, end quote. Now, what he's saying is, is what we're going to look at with these first four seals that are broken are these four horse, horsemen are going to emerge, these four riders on these four horses. And these horses are going to be unleashed by God to do what God has appointed them to do. The reality is, is that God has not unleashed these four horsemen yet. He will, but he hasn't yet. But what Billy Graham was arguing, and what I agree with, is that when we look at the world today, we see the shadows, the foreshadowing of what these four horses and their riders represent. These shadows can be clearly seen. Even more now than in 1983 when Billy Graham wrote that particular book. Now, a couple of things to understand as we move into this section of the book of Revelation. John is now going to talk to us about those things that will be. So the first thing you've got to understand is what we're going to talk about, there's a lot of symbolism, but at the same time, God is revealing to us, Jesus is revealing to us literal reality. In other words, he may be using symbolism, John may be writing using some symbolism, but you have got to understand that what plays out on the pages of Scripture will play out in its, all of its fullness, as literal as Jesus hanging on a cross, as literal as Jesus raising from the dead, as literal as Jesus ascending into heaven. What we're going to read about today and the weeks happen will happen upon this planet. You can't bank on it. It's not a fable. It's not some story that I've made up or that John made up. He saw this play out in front of his very eyes. The second thing I want you to understand is that as we begin in chapter 16, as we move forward, there's going to be three series of different judgments, three series where, where God unleashes his wrath. And those three series starts with the seal judgments. That's what we're looking at now. Remember, Jesus comes up onto the throne of God where God is sitting on the throne, and in his right hand he has a scroll. And John said that when he looked at that scroll, it was sealed with seven seals. It had writing on the front and behind. Jesus takes the scroll out of God's hand because Jesus is worthy to do that. He is God in the flesh. So he takes the scroll, and now he's going to begin to break those seals, and each one of those seals allows another part of the scroll to be unrolled, and Jesus is going to break those seals. Now, the first round of judgments are the seal judgments. But what's interesting is, is that the seventh seal judgment, we have the beginning of the next series of judgments, the trumpet judgments. So think of it this way. If you've ever seen the old telescopes that would kind of expand out, you have the little small section, then a bigger section, a bigger section, and they just kind of expand out. Think of it this way. The seal judgments are the first section. When we get to the seventh seal, it's going to open up the next series of judgments called the trumpet judgments. And then when we get to the seventh trumpet judgment, we're going to open up and we're going to have the seven bowl judgments. And what you need to know about that is that with each successive round of judgments, the judgments become more severe and they come at a much more rapid pace. 
So it's kind of laying out for you where we're going to be going over the next few weeks. So we start out with the seal judgments, and here John sees the seals being broken, and we hear what is being, or we, we begin to see and hear what is written in the scroll itself. I am convinced that there are two approaches to this kind of text and what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. On the one hand, the whole idea of God's judgment just strikes deep within you. Fear, just disgust. I had someone tell me at first service that for years they couldn't even read the book of Revelation because of what was in the pages and knew, knowing that this was going to happen. And, and it wasn't until she was right with the Lord that now she's able to see it from a different perspective. But maybe, maybe this describes you. Maybe when I, when I talk about what the Lord is going to do and what's going to be poured out upon this earth, you, you just retract from that. You just you pull back from it. And in your mind, you begin to make up, well, excuses on how, why that can't be exactly what it is. Well, if that's what is on the inside of you, that we need to pay attention as to why we have that kind of fear. What's going on between your relationship, between you and the king, by which you are dreading and even sick to even think about any of this? Because here's the second perspective, and this is where I am. I am at complete and utter peace when I read about these judgments. Why is that? Because of what Romans chapter 8 verse 1 tells me. Romans chapter 1 verse 8 tells me, or chapter 8 verse 1 tells me that because I am reborn, I am new in Christ, I am now no longer condemned. So what I see playing out in the book of Revelation, this is not meant for me because I am a son of the Most High. Not because I'm a good person, not because I've done the right things, but simply because of the grace of God that took me out of darkness into light. So therefore, I don't have to be worried or fret or lose sleep over the judgments that are getting ready to be poured out. Why? Because I am a son of the Most High. And because of that, I am not condemned. Make no mistake about it, there is a day of reckoning coming. And that day is going to unleash God's wrath upon this planet where there is nothing in history that we can point to, nothing that's going to compare to what God is going to unleash on this planet. The lamb that we saw at the throne, when, when the elder saw Jesus, he saw the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then when John looked, he saw a lamb as though it had been slain, but that lamb was standing. And not only was that lamb standing, that lamb approaches God, takes the scroll out of God's hand, and now begins to unroll the plan of God and reveal it to John. And what you've got to understand, not only today and over the weeks coming, but you've got to get this. You better choose today who you're going to serve. Because I'm going to tell you right now, you don't want to be found out to be an enemy of God. If, if the rapture occurs, and trust me when I tell you, I, I don't believe that the church is involved in any of this. Summer prior to chapter 6, the church has already been taken out. I base that off of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, there are people smarter than me that have a different position. That's great and wonderful. But what I have been able to do in studying God's Word, I still am convinced that the Lord is going to take the church out, and the church will not suffer through the tribulation. You may have a different opinion. That's fine. That's where I'm standing this morning. You better know where you stand with Christ. Because if you are an enemy of Christ, an enemy of Christ is someone who's not put their faith in him. Did you know that? There really is no middle ground here. Either, either you are part 
of Christ's kingdom and you are under the authority of the king and you're also under the protection of the king or you are an avowed enemy to the king and you will face his judgment and his wrath. That's it. There's no middle ground. You need to know where you stand because if you're an enemy of Christ, guess where and guess who this wrath is being poured out on. Let's take a look at it this morning. Verse 1, now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. So here's John. Jesus has the scroll in his hand. He breaks the first seal. Remember, those seals open up each different section of the scroll. So this scroll that was in the right hand of God, now Jesus has it. He breaks this first seal, and he begins to unroll the first section of the scroll. And this is what he says. He says, And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice, like thunder, Come. Now, in your English translation, it may have this, where the, the beast, the living creature around the throne, it may say where the creature says, come and see. But the reality is in the Greek behind the English translation, there is no come and see, it's just simply the word come. So then we have to ask a question. Is, is the beast, this, this being around the throne, is it talking to John and saying, hey John, come over here and take a look at this. Or is the angel calling forth the horse and the rider? I think it's the latter. I think the beast, the four living creatures that are going to speak, when they say come, I think they're actually saying, rider and horse, come forward. John, I don't know what exactly John's seen, but the detail by which John gives us, it's as though the horse and the rider is right there. It's like in that moment, we're at that time in history where God is going to send out these horsemen. And so John is standing there and he sees the horse and the rider appear as the living creature says, come. Now as he's watching, notice what he sees. He says, and I looked and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, the obvious question is, what does this first horse symbolize? Or what is this first horse? Who is the rider? What is he doing? There are some commentators and some riders who say, oh, this is Jesus. That this first horse and this first rider is Jesus because he's going to go out and he's going to conquer. And the way they come to that conclusion is by going over to Revelation chapter 19. And in Revelation chapter 19, we see Jesus there on a white horse. We see him ride out in that final moment of battle in Armageddon where Jesus rides on a white horse. So what they do is they say, okay, if Jesus is on a white horse in 19, this must be Jesus on this horse in chapter 6. However, there's some problems with that. The first problem is the crown. Notice this. A crown was given to him. Now, the Greek word behind the word crown there is the word Stephanus. And it's the idea of a, of a victor's crown, kind of like what they would give when you won the Olympics or won a, a foot race or something like that. But if you go over to Revelation 19, you'll notice there that Jesus on the white horse is wearing many crowns and it's translated as diadem. Totally different crown. And by the way, at this moment where Jesus is unveiling the scroll, he is at that moment the King of kings and Lord of lords. He doesn't need someone to give him a crown. He already has all the crowns because he is the only one who can walk up to the hand of God and take the scroll out of his hand. Nobody else could. 
So on that, I don't think this is Jesus. There's another reason I don't think it's Jesus. You see where the angel or the, the being around the throne says to what I think is the rider come? So if this is Jesus on the horse, you have an angel, you have a being around the throne of God commanding Jesus to come forward, commanding Jesus to ride. Can I just say to you as clearly as I can, there is nowhere, nowhere in the counsel of God's word where any angel ever commands Jesus to do anything. So I'm pretty convinced that this is not Jesus. So who is it? Let's turn over to Matthew 24. What you're going to find in Matthew 24 is how well what Jesus said in Matthew 24 fits into these first four seals. If you turn over there, this is the last days that Jesus is going to be spending with his disciples. They've already entered into Jerusalem. They're getting ready for Passover. Jesus has made some statements about the end of the age, and the disciples, just like I would be, was very curious as to what Jesus was talking about, but specifically, when is this all going to play out? So he takes them over to the Mount of Olives, verse 3, and the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be. Give us a, a date and a time, Jesus. We'd like to know kind of when that is. Jesus says to them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. So Jesus, instead of telling them a date and time, by the way, hold your place at Matthew 24. We'll be going back over there in a little few minutes. You can go back to Revelation. Jesus says to the disciples, rather than giving them a day and a time, he begins to describe the circumstances surrounding this great day of wrath, this end of time that's going to happen. And he says, first of all, you need to know that there's going to be people, there's going to be leaders, there's going to be people who are very convincing that are going to tell you that they are the Christ, that they are the truth, that they are the way. And Jesus says, be aware of them because they're going to lead many astray. I believe this white horse, I don't believe it's Jesus, I believe this white horse and his rider is going to ride upon this earth and the first weapon that God is going to unleash in this is the weapon of deception. He's going to be the very epitome of lying. This rider is going to be the very essence of the spirit of the Antichrist himself the one who will come on the scene, and he will boast great things. We're going to talk about him later. But what he's going to do, and what this spirit and this horse is representing, is going to be the spirit of lies. They're going to go out and proclaim, oh, peace, peace. Come listen to me, and I'll give you peace. Come listen to me, I'll give you the truth. Come listen to me, and I will guide your life. Come, I am the Christ. I am the promised one. I am the one. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And he's going to be an absolute and complete liar. The first weapon that is unleashed, the first wrath that is unleashed is deception. And God says, you're going to have an opportunity to either believe a lie or believe the truth. If this rider on the wild horse has been given a crown, he has a bow, but no arrows. He's going to go out and he's going to conquer. How's he going to conquer? With misinformation. Boy, we're hearing a lot about that today, aren't we? If you've watched the news any this week, you've heard somebody, some political person say, oh, that's misinformation. Something is said about a candidate, oh, that's, that's not true. That's taken out of context. So, so you're trying to figure out who you're going to vote for. So you're trying to get to the truth. Has that been easy for you? Is it easy at all to find the truth? You know, the internet, the internet was supposed to be 
the thing that fixed all of that, where we have a source of information, where we can go to Google and we can type in a question and we can get the answers, truth. But what we have now is more lies than we have truth. Because everyone has a vested interest. Interest. You control the speech. You control what is right and wrong. You control people. So if you can control information, if you can control what is true and what is false, then in essence you're controlling people. This writer, his conquering, the way he's going to be conquering is because he's going to promise peace, but it's going to be anything but. He's going to promise the truth, but it's going to be lies. And get this, our world is ripe for this horse and this rider to ride. Billy Graham said we can see the shadows of these four horsemen. We can see the foreshadowing in our communities right now. Can you not see all of the dishonesty and the lying? You realize how many lies you're hearing every day? And there used to be a little bit of shame. There used to be a little bit of shame connected to people who were caught in a lie. You know what they do now when they're caught in a lie? They just lie more to cover up the lie and make it as though the lie is actual truth. Do we not see the shadows of this horse already in place? There's a lot of deception today, but it will increase exponentially. I read a, a column of a missionary who was serving in China and one day he had the opportunity to pick up a high school ethics book. This is a book that was given to high schoolers in China for the idea of ethics. Now, you got to understand something. If you're going to have ethics or morality, you have to have truth. Truth guides morality and ethics. You can't have ethics without truth. But you got to understand, in China, being a communist government, who is the truth in the Chinese, in the Chinese communist government? The government is what tells you what is true. And what is a lie? In China, they have to control Google. They have to control Facebook. They have to control what the people are exposed to because the government decides for its own people what is true and what is false. So inside this high school ethics book, this missionary opens the book and begins to, to read through it. And he finds, to his surprise, the story of Jesus in John chapter 8. And you know the story in John 8 where Jesus is inside the city of Jerusalem and there's a woman brought who's been caught in the act of adultery. And they throw her down on the ground and all the legal experts are standing around and they've all picked up stones because this woman being caught in adultery, the law would require that she be stoned to death. Now the actual story in John 8 is where Jesus says to the crowd, you without, the, you without sin cast the first stone. And after he says that, Jesus is kind of marking on the ground. We don't know what he was marking and one by one, they begin to drop their, their rocks and walk away. And eventually, all that's left is Jesus and this woman. And of course, Jesus asks her, where are your accusers? She says, well, they've all left. And she says, well, he says, well, go and sin no more. But the story that was in the high school ethic book in China had changed the story. The story of John 8 was not that story. They had changed the story. And this is what the story was saying now, that, that when that woman was thrown down in front of Jesus' feet, that Jesus picks up a rock. And he says that the law must be obeyed, and he is the first one that throws the stone at this woman as they stone her to death. Now, why would the communist country do that? Why, why would the communists do that? To take a story that is filled with grace and mercy and love and flip it around and turn it into something 
about the law. Well, of course the communist government would do that because what are they about? You must obey the law, the law that we tell you. What we tell you is truth. You see, there's one way you can always find a false teacher. There's one way you can always, always find out a false prophet or a false Christ. Here's what they will do. They will always elevate the law and downplay grace every single time. Take a look at Islam. How do you get in good with God? By what? Keeping the law and doing good works. Jehovah Witnesses, how do you get in good with God? Well, you got to knock on doors. And if you don't knock on doors, then you're not right with God. Every religion in the world, every false religion in the world will always elevate what you have to do to earn God's favor and downplay the free gift of salvation and grace. This white horse and its rider will go out to conquer and they will do so, he will do so with deception. Look at verse three. Jesus opens the second seal and I heard the second living creature say, come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slay one another. And he was given a great sword. The first rider has a bow, but no arrows. But now we see the second rider who has a great sword. And the way, and what he's going to do, what this rider is going to do is it says he's going to take peace from the world. Go back to Matthew 24. Let's read a little bit more of what Jesus had to say here. It says here in chapter 24, he says that nation will rise against nation. There'll be rumors of war. But look down at verse 9. He says, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my namesake. Verse 10, this is the key. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and many will be led astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Go back to Revelation. So this second rider is going to take peace. He comes with a sword. And here's what we're going to have. We are going to have social unrest. We are going to have neighbor against neighbor, community against community. You are going to have a situation where there is no longer any law enforcement. There is no justice system. There is no one that you can run to when you've been done wrong that will advocate for you. You've got to understand that even if you're an atheist, even if you believe God doesn't exist, you've got to realize that there is something holding back the evil in this world if you even believe that evil exists. Why is it not worse than it is? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, it's bad enough. But why is it that things haven't just rapidly got more worse, more difficult, more hard? Why is there not more killing in the streets, even though we're seeing enough of it? What is it that's holding that back? Even now, God is holding back the reins of evil because of his sovereignty and providence. Even now, even though Satan is roaming this earth, seeking to devour, he is still under the sovereign control of God. But at this moment, when this horse and his rider rides, get this, Peace will be taken from the earth. We don't know what that's like. Now, for those of you who've served in the military and you've served on the front lines of battle and you've been in those places where you was very hard to find peace, that war had a beginning and it had an end. But notice what happens. Peace is taken from the earth. One of the reasons I think the peace is taken from the earth is not only because the church has been taken out, but the Holy Spirit that indwells the believer has also been taken out. So that restriction on evil has been removed. Jesus told the disciples, 
that the love of many will grow cold. Are we not already seeing the foreshadowing of that? The day you talk about the, the hoofbeats approaching. Billy Graham said, can we not see the shadow of that? You look at what's happening in our country today, the hatred for police officers, the hatred for the court system, this whole idea that we are to take criminals who have been convicted of a crime and simply release them back out on the streets. That's not justice. The, the, the idea that somehow a person can, can, can perform a, a heinous crime and that there are people who just say, oh, it's no big deal, that we're actually the wrong people, we're doing the wrong thing by putting a person in prison. Do you see how even now the idea of peace being removed, the idea that we have cities right now, cities that is absolutely dangerous for you to go into after dark, Places like Chicago, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, even Charlotte at certain times of the night, you don't want to be in certain areas of Charlotte without being in a car or being in a hotel. You don't want to be out there. Lawlessness. This rider on the red horse talks about the lawlessness, and there's going to be a breakdown in civil society. Right now, and I think you're seeing this as well, that just the anger of people. Look, I can't, drive to, I can't drive to Fayetteville on 95 without seeing somebody in a car losing their mind because it's not going fast enough for them. Every time I go up 95, I've got somebody flipping me off. I'm just driving my car, minding my own business. And we've got these maniacs driving 100 miles an hour up 95 because they think they've got to get to their place ahead of everyone else. And if you, if you are in their way, they think you are the problem, and they will let you know that you're the problem. Have you seen the anger? Or maybe I'm just the only one seeing this. Just the anger. And here we are moving into the Christmas season. I'll give you an assignment. Moving into the Christmas season. Let's just see how much peace and love there is on Black Friday. We, we laugh, but there's a whole lot of church people out there on Black Friday. Just saying. When the lines are long and the TV that you wanted to buy is no longer in stock. The shadow of this horse is already, already being seen. Are you amazed at the capacity of cruelty that people have? I tell you, you watch the news, you look at things online, and I'm amazed at the absolute cruelty of people that they, that they perpetuate against other people. Not long ago, just a few weeks ago, there was a young man up in Raleigh who killed his brother, walks out into his neighborhood and just begins to shoot people randomly, killing people. The cruelty of that and all of the mass shootings that we've seen and seen in the news, the, just the cruelty of how can a human being get to that place where their only option is to walk into a school or walk into a hospital or walk into a public area and just begin to kill people? Let me give you another example of cruelty. Just heard about this story. In that same neighborhood in Raleigh, that same neighborhood, where that kid put on the camouflage and went out in his neighborhood and took a gun and started shooting people, this adult man decided it would be a great idea for Halloween in that same exact neighborhood to dress up like that guy and go out and walk on the streets during Halloween. Can you imagine the families who lost a son or a daughter look out their window and see this moron walking down the street because he thinks it's funny? He thinks it's something that you know, he could do and, and people get a laugh at him. Maybe he'll get on YouTube or maybe on TikTok and everybody will applaud him. What a moron. 
But the cruelty of that, to inflict that kind of pain on those folks who've just been through the most incredible pain of their life. Albert Einstein, Albert Einstein's work is what led to the atomic bomb. Albert Einstein, this genius, his work is what led to the atomic bomb. And after the bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, there was a German photographer that was taking pictures of, of Albert Einstein. And the photographer, knowing that Einstein was the brains behind all of that, began to dialogue with Albert Einstein about you know, how he felt about that. And can you imagine the weight of that? Can you imagine that your mathematical computations and your work in science led to a development of two bombs that killed hundreds of thousands of people. Man, that would be a, be a heavy weight. So this German photographer was talking to Albert Einstein, and then this photographer asked Einstein if Einstein believed that there would ever be peace. That there may be, because we dropped these bombs and Japan surrendered, and, and now we're moving out of World War II, and everything's kind of better, and the, war, the wars are kind of over, and everybody's celebrating that. What a great question. Albert Einstein, do you believe that there will be peace? And this photographer described it after he asked the question that Einstein's face got really long. His eyes were just very hollow. And he looked at this photographer, and he said, quote, as long as there will be man, there will be wars. Jeremiah said it this way, Jeremiah 17, verse 6. He says, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know the depths of it? When this writer pulls peace back from our communities, people will slay one another in the streets and they will not hesitate. No justice, no law enforcement, and the world spins off into chaos. Look at verse 5. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. So this black horse comes forward. John looks at the rider, and there's something different about this rider. The previous rider had a sword. The rider before that had a bow, but no arrows. This rider has a set of scales. Kind of like what you've seen like in the courthouse. And as he's looking at the scales, there's a voice in heaven that says, well, a, some wheat for a denarius and barley for a denarius. What is going on? What is happening here? Well, a denarius in John's day was considered to be a day's wages. How much money you would work or work out in a particular day. A quart of wheat was considered to be uh, enough food for one person, one man, to eat one meal that day. And then he says the, the barley, three quarts of barley for one denarius. In other words, you can get one quart of wheat for a day's wages, or you can get three quarts of barley for a day's wages. Now, barley was known as the poor man's food. Barley had very little nutritional value. Oftentimes, they would mix barley with wheat to get some kind of nutrition out of it. But if you just ate barley, it's like eating cardboard. They would feed it to the animals. So uh, a day's wage could buy you three quarts of, uh, of barley, or it could buy you one quart of wheat. Either way, it's extraordinarily expensive, and eventually, you're going to starve. Guess what we have with this third rider, something that you're going to understand really 
really quickly. We're going to have astronomical inflation. Food is going to be so expensive that it's going to lead to a famine. Now, I want you to understand that wherever we find war, wherever we find chaos, wherever we find killing in the streets, you always find poverty and you always find famine, always. You go to places like Somalia. They've been fighting for years, these tribal wars. And Somalia has the land capacity to grow the food that they need. But because they're perpetually in war, and these warlords are destroying the crops or stealing the food, or the people are scared to death to even go out and, and plant something, they're starving to death. Everywhere you find war, you find famine. We just had the second rider who's taken peace from the world. Chaos is in the streets. As a result, food is going to be hard to find. And the food that you do find, you won't be able to afford. So you've got family, you've got kids, you've got people that you need to feed, but no matter how much you work, you can't make enough money to support your family. Now that first horse, of originally, the white horse, he promised peace. But we have anything but peace. We have people starving to death in the street. Man will work all day for just enough wheat to feed himself. Or he can get the barley enough to feed his family, but it doesn't really feed his family. You could be eating and still starve to death. This third horse brings with it famine. Right now, today, right now, 900 million people on this planet do not have enough to eat. 900 million. On this planet right now, outside of our country and the other uh, leading countries who have a medical system and a food system in place, the rest of the world, 75% of the world, the majority of the world, children most often die before they turn age five. Not because of necessarily sickness, but because of malnutrition. They don't have enough food. Places like India, where this morning when they got up, the first thing the kids had to do was go to the local dump and dig through the piles of trash hoping to find something to eat. Now, with this horse, we already have killing in the streets. We already have astronomical inflation. And now we have people starving to death because they can't feed themselves. Let's go to the next one. So we have the weapon of deception, the weapon of war, the weapon of famine. And now we get to the next one. Verse 7, he says, When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. Now, the word pale makes it think like, make us think like, well, is this like, a, like an off-white horse, or is just like kind of a gray horse? Actually, it's probably more green, yellowish, the Greek behind your English, that's what it seems to indicate. Almost like a sick or even decomposing body, kind of that color. And its rider's name was Death. So this rider has a name. Its name is Death. And riding closely behind or following closely behind is Hades. Hades being the abode of the unrighteous dead. Those who have died apart from Christ who are awaiting judgment. It says that Death is riding upon the horse and following closely behind somehow is the abode of the unrighteous dead, Hades. Often translated in your Bible as hell. Says Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence by wild beasts of the earth. So they are given the ability, this writer is given the ability to just abject kill a quarter of the population. 
begin to kind of think about that and just wrestling, <laughs> studying this text and the, the, what we've got coming up that we said, I just, there's times I just have to sit back in my chair and just kind of put my hands behind my head and just kind of let it kind of sink in for a minute because, again, I have nothing in history that I can point to and go, oh, it's like that. Nothing like that. But this rider, when he rides, death will be poured out on this planet up to the point where a quarter of the population of the earth at that time will perish. Now, I want you to notice how that this rider is still restricted by God. All of this is still under the restriction of God. This is not like just chaos unleashed with no control. God is still providentially in control. Jesus is providentially in control. But a quarter of the humanity will die. Now, they're projecting that by 2040, the population of the earth will be 9 billion people. Today, it's 7.9 billion people. And I've already said that by this point, by the time we get to chapter 6, the church is already taken out. So some number of people have already been taken out. But let's assume, let's assume that at the time this happens, there is 7.9 billion people on this planet. And when this rider begins to ride, he is going to take out a fourth of that, which equals 1.9 billion people. Let me let's try to put that in some kind of perspective. Back at the height of the COVID epidemic, or pandemic, up in New York, there were reports of the hospitals up there, the large hospitals being so overwhelmed that so many people were dying, they had to bring in refrigerated trailers I know this is terrible to consider, but stick with me for a moment. They had to bring in refrigerated trailers because they didn't have enough room in the morgue for all those people that had passed away from COVID. So they had to put the bodies in refrigerated trailers just to be able to have the space. And it wasn't just New York. It was any other places, even around the globe, where the pandemic was hitting especially hard. Now, when we think about the people who died in pandemic, how awful that was with the COVID, think about this. This is astronomically far more greater. 1.9 billion people. You can imagine that that's not only going to overwhelm the hospitals. It's going to overwhelm the mortuaries. It's going to overwhelm the funerals. It's going to overwhelm the grave diggers. It's going to overwhelm everything to the point where there will be bodies in the streets everywhere you look. If you add to that the disease, you add to that the famine, you add to that all that is already happening, but listen to what he says. He says he will be given us, he'll kill with a sword, with famine, with pestilence. Look at this, by wild beasts? Are you kidding me? So right now, you know, if you if you go on a safari in Africa, if you're, and there's plenty of videos on YouTube of people doing this, you walk out into that jungle area and you want to get a selfie with a lion, that usually doesn't work out too well. People get really close and they take taking a picture. That lion will attack you if you encroach on his his territory. But right now in Africa, those lions are pretty well keeping to themselves. They're out there doing their own thing. If you get in their territory, you threaten them, it could be a problem. I like to go hiking. There are black bears where I go hiking. And I've read all the information. You see a black bear, just give him his space. Back up. Just don't, don't run. That's a bad idea. Just give him space and eventually they'll move on. But what's happening here is whatever restraint that God has placed on the animal kingdom because peace has been removed, at this moment when death comes, those restraints will be taken off. So wild animals will be attacking humanity and will be adding to the death pole. Can you imagine that? We have nothing 
in our history or time to even say that's, well, it's like that. One-fourth of the population. Get this, by the time we get to the sixth trumpet, we have the seal judgments, then we have the trumpet judgment. By the time we get to the sixth trumpet, half the world's population has died in less than seven years. We'll get to that later. Half the population. Now, it's at this very moment, you're wrestling in your mind with who is God really? That would be natural, right? A God who loves? A God who allowed his son to die? A God who didn't intervene when, when people were cursing him and mocking him? He didn't intervene? And he did that because he loved you and he loved me, but, but this same God that we're talking about now in chapter 6 is going to unleash this kind of wrath upon the earth and you're wrestling with that, I want you to understand that God is both loving and he is a righteous judge. He will make all the wrongs right. And you've got to reconcile this in your mind because that's the identity, the reality, the very attributes of this holy God. He is both loving, but he is also going to pour out wrath. He is, he is both perfect in every way, but he is going to judge the earth in that perfection. And you have got to know what side of the equation you're on here. Folks, this is not something to be played around with. This is not something to go, oh, wow, that's kind of an interesting story. This is reality that God has given us in advance. And the reason he's given it to us is because he wants us to choose today whom we're going to serve. Who have you chosen? If you've chosen to be an enemy of his, woe on you. That's a bad choice. Not only if God tarries another thousand years before this is poured out, you're still going to meet death. And when you meet death, that full wrath of God is going to be poured out on you. So choose this day who you're going to serve. Believers, followers, disciples of Jesus, if we believe that this is true, that we believe that this is real, then we've got to start talking more about the Jesus we're following if we want them to escape the wrath that is coming. Amen? We have got to quit being silent about this Jesus we love, this Jesus who saved us. We have got to quit staying in a corner somewhere and keeping our faith reserved for only Sunday. It's about time, past time, way past time, that if this is coming, and it is, it's about time the people of God, the sons and daughters of God, start proclaiming this God and saying, let's live for God and let's quit being afraid of following Jesus in the public square. Period. <laughs> Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and grace. And Father, that is, that is the most obvious response to a text like this. On the one hand, if we've been born again, there should be a peace that comes with that. And just like John at the end of this book says, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We can pray that prayer without any fear or any reserve. But Father, I also know that either watching online or in this room, there's a great amount of stress that comes with considering the wrath that is coming. So Father, we ask that for them, they would put their faith in you, that right now in this moment, they would confess that they are a sinner, which means that they have disobeyed you, that they have lived their own life for their own reasons and their own purposes. And Father, they would surrender right now and say, Lord, I believe that you rose from the dead and I believe that you died for my sins and I believe that you sit at the right hand of the Father and I surrender all of my life to you. The free gift that you've given us comes by childlike faith. 
May that be the reality for many today, that crossing from death into life. But equally true, Father, for those who have that peace that surpasses all understanding that we would we would be telling others about the wrath that is coming. We build those relationships and love people right where they are for the sake of seeing them put their faith in you. Father, this text demands that we, that we be on mission together. Father, we love you. We thank you. In this moment, I pray, Father, that each person can clarify what side of this equation they're standing on. Either they're going to be the recipients of God's wrath or they've, ever, they've already been set free from it. Only two possibilities. We love you. We thank you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together in this worship. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist. 